0: Welcome to Stories of Recovery. My name is Robbie Frawley, and on this podcast, I interview people who have experienced and recovered from brain related conditions such as stroke, concussion, chronic pain, and traumatic brain injury. We discuss their story and highlight the things which have been most beneficial and most important in their recovery. This might be specific treatments or medical professionals that were most crucial, it could be books knowledge or advice which they were given or which they found along the way, or even particular habits, attitudes or practices that help them the most. If you or someone you care about is struggling to recover from one of these or another brain-related condition, the podcast was really made with you in mind. I want you to know that others have been where you are now and that they have gotten better. You can recover and hopefully in the interviews that follow, you will hear a thing or two which resonate and which help you to do Just that. So who am I? Well, I'm a young man who grew up in country Victoria, Australia, and I've had a number of concussions growing up playing sport. After the last one, which was over seven years ago now, I developed something called post-concussion syndrome. I'd never even heard of this, but it left me with ongoing fatigue, headaches, nausea, vertigo, cognitive fog, overwhelm, and sensitivity to impact. It had a really dramatic effect on my life and it took many years, much effort and great assistance from others to fully recover from it. And now that I am back to 100% and again have some surplus energy I'd like to help you in any way I can to get you back to good health. My hope is that we can provide some light at the end of the tunnel for you and also give you some useful tips and tricks that might help you along the way. Now One thing to remember is that the brain is a really marvellous thing, and you can, and you will get better. Now I've left in as much of the context, detail, and information in these interviews as possible, which means they can be quite long, but they are split into key chapters to make it easier to listen, and to help you to focus on what you need to hear right now. And remember that you can pause and come back to the story in as many small bites as you need. Now without further ado, let's jump into it. This episode is a bit different in that it is my story, and so someone else is interviewing me. I'll introduce her now. Associate Professor Tasha Stanton is the Osteoarthritis Research Theme Lead for Impact in Health at the University of South Australia, and a National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia Fellow. She's a clinical pain neuroscientist with original training as a physiotherapist. Her research focuses on pain, and she has a specific interest in pain education, osteoarthritis, low back pain, cortical body representation, somatosensation, and body illusions using virtual and mediated reality. In short, though, she's one of the leading pain researchers globally, And it was ultimately through meeting Tasha and learning some lessons from her field of pain science that helped me to find the final steps back to 100%. Now I want to acknowledge up front that whilst it took me over seven years to fully recover and that that is probably not an enticing proposition for you, if I did know at the start everything that I know now, I believe it would have taken me only a fraction of this time. And that's why I want to share these learnings with you. I hope that at the least they give you hope, and at the most, help you recover. This conversation took place on the lands of the Kwana people of the Adelaide Plains, and I would like to acknowledge them as traditional owners of this land and pay respect to their elders, past and present. I would also like to pay my respect to other Aboriginal language groups and other First Nations. I wish you courage and energy on your own journey forward, and I hope you enjoy this long sometimes tangential, interweaving conversation. Cheers.
1: You ready to go? I'm ready. You're ready. All right. Welcome there to all the listeners. Um, you might not know who I am. I don't know who you are yet, but my name is Tasha Stanton and I work as an associate professor at the University of South Australia. And I'm really excited today because I get to have the very wonderful opportunity to interview um, someone you do know, Robbie Frawley. And he, um, as you will have known, has, has done other different interviews of various different people, but he also comes to this with you know, a really unique and powerful story himself. So um, welcome, Robbie. Thanks for letting me take over.
0: Thank you, Tasha. It's fantastic to be here and fantastic to see you and to be speaking with you.
1: Wonderful. So, Robbie, I think one of the things that, you know, is really, really interesting and really powerful about all of these different things is hearing what people have gone through. Um, But I guess before I want to go into that, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, who was Robbie? What was, what was life like before, you know, you kind of underwent um, the experiences that you went through?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in uh, southwestern Victoria on a sheep and cattle farm. And so I lived a pretty active outdoor life, um, always working after school on the farm and um, playing a lot of sport, as you do in country areas.
1: So what, type, what type of sports did you play?
0: Uh, what did I play? Um, you name it anything to do with the water I love so surfing water skiing swimming um but then football cricket basket sorry I didn't like cricket I (laughs) I toyed with cricket I didn't keep going (laughs) football hockey um basketball um a little bit boxing um snow skiing yeah just you know running
1: you name it yeah
0: it's um it's a big part of country life and so that was yeah, I, I suppose, sorry, just prior to the accident or the event, um, I, so I'd gone off to university, I'd studied civil engineering and I was working back in Warrnambool, so in a regional centre um, as a civil engineer and, yeah, just making the most of every moment. So I was loving surfing. I'd wake up before work and run down to the beach and go surfing and on a particularly good day I could get you know a surfing before work, a surfing at lunchtime and a surfing after work. You know, I'd be riding. Um, I think I'd just been training, at, you know, with the Warrnambool Football Club, and very vibrant social life. And heading to Melbourne to catch up with mates down there, and heading up to the farm to look, you know, to help mum and dad, or to see my family, and catch up with friends here, there, and everywhere. And yeah, it was, it was very filled, but it was
1: it was a good time. Yeah, oh, that's a beautiful area as well. Sure uh, it is. Very yeah. good choice. <laughs> Um, tell me a little bit more than what, what happened, um, with, with your injury.
0: Sure. So it wasn't actually anything too spectacular. Um, I'd had quite a f- number of concussions, maybe five or six growing up. They're all very mild. I hadn't actually lost consciousness with any of them. Um, they had been from, strangely, I didn't actually have any in football. I, they had been water skiing or wakeboarding, um, snow skiing, surfing, boxing, and this one I was wakeboarding. So it's like it's like oh, behind a boat, so behind a speedboat, kind of like water skiing, but it's like the snowboarding or skateboarding equivalent.
1: You do all those crazy flippity flips.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so your feet are um, strapped in very, very tight, and you know, the tighter you can get them the better because you want to have the really responsive board. And so that turns out that's not ideal <laughs> for um, – you know
1: other things yeah yeah.
0: but um I really loved wakeboarding and but on this particular day it was wasn't trying to do anything special I was there with some friends and you know cruising along and I think I just did something really basic like a bunny hop and sort of switched from my stance so instead of left foot forward I was right foot forward and I was I don't know trying to do it over something and got a bit distracted and instead of going all the way around, only went halfway around and then landed and so caught that front edge. And the effect of that was if it was to kind of whiplash me into the water. And, I mean, that's pretty common with um, wakeboarding, as I said, particularly if you have really tight bindings. And
1: I've definitely done that snowboarding, so I
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> completely understand catching common. the front edge. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for whatever reason on this particular day, that didn't respond well. So I sort of came up and I was a bit thrown and a bit sort of like, oh, something about it sort of made me a little bit nervous but i kind of climbed back instead of um putting the board back on and keeping going like i normally would i sort of climbed into the boat and said i'm sort of done and then we went home and um i was sort of a little bit out of it Um, i was aware that i was a little bit out of it and so i didn't actually drink even though i had friends over that night I made sure I didn't drink alcohol just because I was sort of, I obviously had some awareness of background with concussions and so I was sort of just wanting to do the right thing. And um, anyway, went to bed. Next day I was sort of feeling pretty good. So I got up and uh, my friends headed off and I went surfing. And again I was surfing, like tiny surf. (laughs) I was surfing a mini male and I sort of did a late drop. I was like dropped into the wave late and was I don't know how I did this but effectively caught an edge again and so again kind of whiplashed in and I think I came out of that and was sort of very slow. Yeah. And then basically sat up and had a very quiet day and had a very quiet couple of days. I think it was a long weekend so I didn't do too much. I was feeling very, a little bit ill yeah, and groggy and I just thought, I just need to chill. And um, went back to work on the Monday or the Tuesday um, after the long weekend and. Pushed through to the end of the week and then was just knackered. So I sort of made the end of the week. I had headaches and not feeling very good but that's quite common with concussion. You obviously feel pretty rough, you know, in the days and the weeks after and then you normally just sort of start to improve. So I was aware of that. I wasn't concerned about it but I was just kind of pushing through and then I'd get to the weekend and I just slept which was pretty, wasn't standard behaviour for me and then got it's Monday again and was like, "All right, I'm ready to go, you know, push through to the week, kind of grinding." Um and then got to the weekend and I was just cooked. And I think I actually went back to my parents' place and basically went to sleep and just was in bed, like pretty much did nothing.
1: That and must th- have been quite concerning for them, I imagine. Or did they maybe. they were like, "Oh, maybe he's just tired." I'm not
0: <laughs> sure. I don't have a great they probably were a bit concerned, but I'm not super sure. Anyway, on the Monday, they I think they sort of said, oh, you know, I think you maybe just keep resting. And I was, of course, terribly stressed about, you know, well, but hang on, I've got these things to do at work. Like, they have to happen. Like, they, I can't not go back. And I remember talking to my boss and he'd be like, don't worry about it. Like, just take it easy. Um, anyway, I took off the week and just rested. And again, the next weekend, I was like, right, I'm good to go. And um, anyway, after a few cycles of that very boom bust, I went in and saw my GP and he, I was fortunate, was, had had some experience previously with a trauma rehab centre in Geelong called Grace McKellar. I think it was Grace McKellar Community Outreach or Community Rehab Centre. And so he sort of said, oh, look, this is, you know, I feel like I've seen something like this before. It might be worthwhile you going and seeing these guys. And so he gave me a referral and they were fantastic. Um, I guess that's what you would call a, um, or I would call kind of best current practice mm. in terms of concussion rehab um, where you've got or I had um, a team of people, so uh, the main person kind of the uh, – the director, if you like, um, running the show was a trauma rehab physician and then there was an occupational therapist and a physiotherapist and an exercise physiologist and a neuropsychologist. And effectively what they're doing is they would typically see people who have experienced car crashes and things like that Um, and then they would be seeing them as a team and all putting in their little bit of specialty expertise to kind of help this person recover. And they would do that in both an inpatient setting for people in hospital, but also they had an outpatient service where people like me could come in from outside and have your appointments and then go away. And so I came in and they basically sort of um, ran me through a bunch of tests and that involved uh, I think like a questionnaire and like cognitive tests where they would sort of read out an A, 7, B, 12, you know, a series of numbers or letters and then ask you to repeat them back or that type of thing or get you to do some puzzle (laughs) and time you and then...
1: No stress. And then kind
0: of look at you and you're you're trying to work out if that was a good time or not a good time. (laughs) And other than physical tests, like they had a balance board thing that... You know, you had to stand in and close your eyes and it would move and shudder and assess where your balance was and whether your reactions effectively were within the normal range. So lots of different tests like that and then they sit down and speak with you and talk to you about, I guess, what the results were and and what they thought and what that meant going forwards. And so they sort of said to me, look, this is, um, it looks like classic post-concussion syndrome, which is not something I'd ever heard of, and they said, I think they said 20% of concussions don't resolve within the standard period. The symptoms persist and we can tell you that you will return to normal. We just can't tell you when. And so, you know, then they would sort of highlight, okay, well, in these areas you're quite strong or in these areas there's quite a deficit there. And effectively, then they kind of, I guess, each of the specialties would work, you know, give you some strategies um, as to how to cope in life, if you like, because um, you're pretty limited.
1: So what sort of strategies or things did they think at that point were really quite important for you to focus on?
0: Uh, everything was about pacing. So everything was about a management strategy. So it was, for me at that time, I was really, really fatigued, you know, I would as as I sort of said, I would go to work, I would push through and then I would literally just come home and collapse and then I would get up and do it again. And so they would sort of describe that as if you're doing that and you're having to collapse, you're going too hard and so you need to stop before you get to the point of not being able to do anything and recharge your batteries earlier, if you like, and they described that in a... When your brain's recovering from a concussion, effectively its energy requirement is much greater than in a normal setting. So everything you're doing, if normally, it, for, the, for an analogy, if it required one muesli bar to do X task, you know, in a concussed state or recovering from a concussed state, it might take two or three muesli bars. That's sort of chewing through that energy and it's fatiguing quick, more quicker than usual.
1: It's kind of interesting because sometimes, like, fatigue is not always attributed to being, you know, a symptom of something. Like, oftentimes we think, oh, I've just done too much mm. versus, like, really having, I guess, that understanding that when you've undergone something like this, actually, there are different requirements. It means that this is completely makes sense why you're so tired all the time or, like, was that grasping that bit helpful or did you kind of already work out that yourself by, I guess your experiences of kind of boom and bust.
0: Um it was helpful. It was helpful to to have I think it's helpful when someone can say yes I know what's wrong with you and that's normal. Yeah. And we can assist with that. Um it yeah it sort of it did make sense. It did help um because I suppose I still have this mental image in my head which was I think talking about it is obviously taking me back, but I had this mental image and I would describe it to people in that, you know, say in a kid's video game, you'll often have the, the, if you're a character, you'll have an energy bar in, say, the top right-hand corner and that will slowly sort of go down, you know, either during the game or if the character is, I don't know, attacked by (laughs) something. Um, And... I would just find that energy bar. I could, in some situations, I could nearly see that energy bar just dropping. Like if I walked into a supermarket, wow. Like it it taught me how much stimulation is in a supermarket because I could walk in kind of fully charged and I would just, (laughs) I could just see the energy bar just draining. And I'd think, I need to get out of here in the next two minutes or I'm going to be on the ground. And I guess I realized since that. It's because everything in a supermarket is designed to grab your attention. Everything's fighting. Everything's designed there to fight for your attention. And in, a, in an overstimulated state, that's way too much. Exhausting. Yeah, yeah. And that
1: is interesting to think about, yeah, like the different areas of our environment that like they would require – higher energy sources or or, or more energy to go into them and still be able to come out because I know what you mean. I find supermarkets exhausting. They're so bright and it's loud and it's echoey and it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot on actually.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So with that, um, the program that you, that you went through, how long were you, um, you know, doing that outpatient program?
0: So I was living in Warrnambool and the outpatient center was in Geelong. So that's, Bit so of a track. About two hours away, hour and a half to two hours. So, and I was still trying to work. So, my parents had very wisely sort of pushed me to keep working because at times on this boom-bust cycle, it was just too much, and I was starting to become concerned about what was going, what on earth was going on with my, because my whole system was kind of when I was shutting down, um, you know, everything would start to fail if you like you know I'd be getting the headaches which at the start had been acceptable Mm -hmm. had become more severe and more persistent and nausea and I was becoming increasingly sort of nauseous and unbalanced if I was not feeling right Um, and cognitively I didn't feel very clear so I'd feel really foggy and like I couldn't think and I'd be concerned about that. And so then, you know, then you're assessing to see if I am, if I, am I thinking? Am I with it? Like, you know, and so...
1: <laughs> it's a um, circle, isn't oh, it? it's a vicious, vicious circle. circle.
0: <laughs> and so, and what else? I don't know. So I guess you've, all of these symptoms had become stronger and stronger. And so I was concerned about those and I was thinking, and when you would stop and you would rest, they would subside. And so as I explained I would have what was initially like a weekend of rest and then they would kind of all subside and I'd be feeling good and I would think, I'm good to go. And then I would jump back into work and they would sort of slowly creep back on but I wouldn't really listen to them. I would just persist until the end of the week and then they would be at a state where they were so inflamed and revved, Mm -hmm. if you like, that I was really struggling to operate in the world. And so I think at the time I was quite concerned and, and I guess previous knowledge around concussion was you know if you saw an old school gp they'd say lie in a dark room until your symptoms subside so there's a little part of you that's thinking maybe i should just be lying in a dark room until these subside and i you know give myself enough time to lie there and this resolve um but i guess that's probably quite an old school view and Anyway, so there was some sort of concern about wanting to do that and my parents at the time sort of pushed me or encouraged me strongly to keep going to work in whatever form and that was probably one of the first things that the, the team at Grace McCullough suggested was actually cutting work back to half-time. So I would go in and I think initially it might have been half-time every second day. So, And I suppose because they're a medical team and you're getting a medical certificate and they would write that and my workplace was incredibly supportive. Um, I was really fortunate. Not everyone's like that. And, you know, so yeah, that, that was just really lucky. So I could do that. Um, so that was a big thing. They sort of cut it back to half time.
1: And did you notice a difference with that? Like once you started to reduce those hours at work, did did it start to feel like you're kind of being able to make headway on some of those like exhaustion, headache, nausea type symptoms?
0: It's funny. I guess I did. At the time, I always felt like I was kind of working at threshold. Yeah. Um, Like I was probably just not very aware of or very good at listening to what my body and my symptoms were telling me. I think that's that.
1: that's universal, I think, for a lot of us, especially if you're in, you know, a lot of different sports. You actually learn to ignore <laughs> pain, soreness, discomfort, things like that, because you're pushing to do things. So I imagine, like, I'm almost picturing, like, relearning, <laughs> mm-hmm. listening to the body, because I, I think, I don't know, I, I guess I probably put this into my own personal circumstances, but I know I am I can be bad at that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then
1: you sort of realize that you've gone too far. Yeah. And But by then it's too late. You've already passed that threshold. Passed the point. And it's like, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. But that, but that's really interesting. That, yeah, that it, it was almost, yeah, you're, you're re, relearning, or going through that, that thresholding.
0: Mm. And I think I was a very slow learner. <laughs> so, just for context, too, this was that initial injury or you know bump, <laughs> wakeboarding fall was seven and a half years ago. Yeah, I think. Um, and I'm 34 now. So, yeah, it was in my late 20s. Um, and yeah, I think I was a really slow learner <laughs> of graded anything. You know, I think I've always been very much, you're either 100% in or I'm not doing you're not in at all. And through just <laughs> repetition and getting knocked down, <laughs> like, no, you need to do this graded, <laughs> very slowly. <laughs> Seen and I appreciate now the the benefits and the advantages in doing something, and that could be anything, you know, in a graded way. Like during COVID, I did a catch to five k program because I, you know, like the app,
1: yeah. And
0: I was comfortable at that point, and we can talk about that later. Like that, I had was good to go, and I was one hundred percent. But I still hadn't run for seven years. I used to run a lot, and so. That sort of really highlights that. I, in the past, if someone said I'd oh, do a catch, stick 5K, there's this app, and you know, in eight weeks, eight weeks, like no, I can run 5K today. I'm- I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, whereas I'm much more happy to do that now, and I think I just get that it works yeah. for our bodies and our brains and everything. It just we're kind of geared that that is quite. Even if we don't want to do that for whatever reason, it's very beneficial to our systems. Yeah. And so that was great. I mean, eight weeks, before, it's amazing. Like you click your fingers and it's gone and you're running 5K <laughs> and you feel good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Instead of dying the next day after yeah, being like, exactly. what have I done to myself?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so um, what, what sort of happened, I guess, um, so you've gone into this, the program where you're kind of getting some personalised advice about pacing, reducing work. What sort of happened with your symptoms over time?
0: Well, I guess there's sort of the the meta view or the, the broad view or the micro view. And so at a broad level, they trended up. You know, they gradually increased and you would say, oh, that's, that's really good. But that isn't how I necessarily felt at the time. So on the kind of micro day-to-day week view, I was still sort of boom busting and I was still it was a, it was a battle and a grind and um, it didn't often it didn't feel like I was making progress um, or moving forward and so it's really important i think sometimes and you can only do that over a broader time scale to kind of stand back and go hang on have i made improvement here am i going in the right direction and i guess the other thing is you might be making improvement but you might not be to your expectation of time so when you've initially got an expectation that I'm going to be good to go in a week or that, you know, you've got all these things in your calendar, you've got weddings lined up and you've got trips lined up. It's good weather. So you want to be going surfing like it's middle of summer, Tash. I mean, it's like, I want to go water skiing and wakeboarding. That's and impossible tonight. <laughs> exactly. And and my probably my brain and my expectations of what I wanted to be doing. Again, you can sit back now and go, oh yeah, it was all trending in the right direction. But at a time scale that I wouldn't have wanted to know about at that point, I didn't. You know, I think you'd start reading stuff and people would talk about six weeks or this period or that period, and you know, I was only interested in the shortest possible time period. <laughs> um, whereas, yeah, so it was it definitely fluctuated short term. You know, I was a slow learner, as I said, of that of doing things graded. Um, but I, as you stand back, it did trend up.
1: And I think that that actually is such a that hits home to me a lot. That's such an important message. That idea that it doesn't feel like you're mm. improving when you look into the minutiae small scale, but stepping back, mm. it actually is. And and I think that is hard to feel like something's improving if you're if basically what you're trying to do most of the times is pushing things just to threshold. And mm. not over, because that push to threshold is pretty important. But then you kind of constantly feel almost like crap Yes, <laughs> a absolutely. lot of the time. So it feels like, I guess I I see, we do see this when we work with people who have pain, that oftentimes we're trying to increase activity and you're always pushing to that that point where it's starting to feel uncomfortable, it's starting to increase in pain. So it doesn't feel like it's definitely getting better because you're feeling pain most days.
0: It's never comfortable.
1: That's right. But I think what a that's such an important point that, that that trajectory is still going. It just takes that step back. But I, but I, I take your point about t- expectations of time. I'm, I'm quite impatient. I hear you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so I suppose to describe what that looks like. Yeah. So the key strategies that I was using at that time that were, I guess, taught to me by that team, the first one was I, that if you if we talk about that energy bar again, sorry, the, the life bar, if you like, in the top right-hand corner of your screen, <laughs> if you're seeing, you're, you know, looking out through your eyes. If I'm running full, I would, I guess at the point I was seeing Grace Michal to be, so the clinic, you know, to begin with, I think I would last an hour and a half to two hours
1: mm.
0: and every hour and a half to two hours I would need to lie down in a dark room for 15 minutes Mm. and doing that would allow my energy bar to fill back up and then i'd be good to go again and the symptoms wouldn't generally be there and i'd be feeling pretty good but by the time i got to that hour and a half two hour period i'd be starting to slur i'd be becoming unstable i'd be starting to fog would be coming into my my sort of thinking space Um, I'd be starting to get a headache, I'd be starting to feel nauseous. um, And if I wasn't really aware of the time, I quickly became aware something was up and I'd be like, oh, it's like an hour and a half, it's two hours, I need to lie down now. Um, And so over time I reduced, I guess, that time. So, you know, from 15 minutes to 14 minutes, and, you know, I literally just had you know, got a phone in my pocket and there's a great, you know, on the clock thing, there's a, a great countdown timer. that I've used that so many times <laughs> in the last seven years because, you know, it's just always set on whatever you've had it on. So, like, that would go from sort of 15 to 14 to 13 to 12 to, you know, slowly and then the gap between them. So, from, you know, every hour and a half to two hours to sort of get slowly. And that might be over two weeks. So, like, over, you know, I might be at. Say ten minutes, you know, and I got to the point where I didn't have to be lying horizontally in a dark room, but I could just sit and close my eyes, and that was a big, big thing because you can sit and close your eyes anywhere. anywhere. It's quite amazing. I've sat and closed my eyes in some, you know, (laughs) you can. If you're in Melbourne, I remember I was the first few times I went to Melbourne after like years later, and I'd be have gone to somewhere to see people, but I might be on a street, and you're sort of trying to, I don't know. You don't really want to go into all the details so you wouldn't tell people all the stories but you would excuse yourself for some reason and shuffle out around the corner you'd be (laughs) sitting in some alley and like sit on some milk crate beside all the rubbish or something and just close your eyes for at that point it was six minutes and just put the timer on and but that was so regenerative regenerative
1: i reckon that's a word (laughs) definitely (laughs) um
0: Yeah, and so I think that's, I mean, I actually still use that. So I got to a point where I don't think I needed it anymore, but I actually decided, I realized that I, so that's, sorry, that's every four hours thereabouts, four to five hours, I'll still stop whatever I'm doing if I need to remove myself from where I am or if I'm doing it wherever I am. I'll put on the timer, three minutes, I'll just close my eyes. And I'll just either just close my eyes and kind of switch off Or if I'm distracted, I'll just start listening to the noises around me. So if I do that right now, I can hear the projector hum to my left. I can hear some traffic or something behind me. I can hear this kind of low hum of the air conditioner above. I can hear my hand moving in the air to the right or it must be something to do with the fabric. And I don't know, for me, that was really, really grounding. I knew that if I had just stopped doing it, which I could have, mm. I, I would sort of just never stop. And so I decided at that point, it's actually quite a healthy habit just to sustain in life because you actually stop and you pull yourself out of whatever you're doing. and So I've sort of just kept that.
1: Mm. that's really good so you're kind of explaining that those those taking those mini breaks and structured so that you know that you need to do that but then also using those kind of grounding techniques to just center yourself where you are and and do you find with those ones is it with those you're noticing what's around you are you also noticing internal sensations or is it mainly
0: it's mainly i'm aware that in mindfulness people have various techniques and Often that will be feeling sensations in your body or um, noticing thoughts or Mm. different things. For me, like I meditate now a little bit, so I've sort of found that really useful as well. So I might meditate. I might just put on the Calm app. It's really good. Put on a 10-minute meditation. I'll try to do that once a day because I find that really a really good life thing and really calming and centering and sort of, I don't know, I'd just recommend it. It's really yeah. good. But but in that, I definitely do that body scan thing where you're actually sort of starting. You know, you'll breathe deeply for a while first, and then start at the top of your head and go through your body, noting what am I feeling, like any sensations, and stuff, and then I'll come back and like breathe into them. But when I, I guess the switching off initially at the point of switching off, I was just completely s- exhausted. So literally, I was just closing my eyes and zonking. <laughs> And then I think over time, it was like after I'd come to from the zonk, you know, the last like minute, I might be almost come back to <laughs> consciousness, then I might be listening.
1: Yeah. I love that word, zonking. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very good description of it.
0: So, sorry. Yeah. So that was one yeah. thing that over time, that was a really key strategy. Yeah. The other thing was planning stuff out. And so they would say, okay, if you need to mow the lawns rather than, say, mowing all of the lawns at once. Just plan to do half the lawns and just stop. And again, at the start, I was like, what? What do you mean? (laughs) But, um, yeah, everything was just breaking things into component parts and allowing yourself then just sit on the couch for a bit and do what? Don't do anything.
1: Just
0: just be. (laughs) You're
1: like, this is very difficult advice. Do you know who I am? (laughs) So do you feel throughout this like so clearly as you've mentioned this this was a a process that took time and and maybe more time than than often you'd hope
0: much more time than I was hoping or expecting (laughs)
1: with with that did you find that there were certain things that you know were really quite crucial like books resources things like that that were crucial to your journey kind of along this yeah absolutely
0: so I think a really fundamental thing for me was learning to have an appreciation of um, neuroplasticity and that's a big word but effectively it just means the brain's capacity and capability to heal and to grow and you're a researcher in this field so you if I'm butchering you know the you're description doing very well. you're doing <laughs> please <well. laughs> jump in and correct me but this is my layman's terms understanding of it and I think that's really important because I certainly grew up with this understanding that the brain is hardwired and very differently to every other organ in our body it can't heal or regenerate or renew itself the way that our if we cut ourselves our arm will heal itself and so if that is a thought process it's quite destructive if you have had an injury to your brain and so a book that was particularly helpful to me and I would really recommend to anyone listening to this whether you've had some sort of you know you're you're recovering from something or whether you're a friend or family member of someone who's recovering from something or whether you just happen to have stumbled upon this podcast, I'd really recommend looking for and reading or listening to a book called The Brain That Changes Itself by a medical doctor in the US called Dr. Norman Doidge, so D-O-I-D-G-E, because I had a a colleague's partner. I remember seeing her one day and she sort of said to me, oh, Robbie, I was... I hopped in my boss's car the other day and there was this audiobook playing and I think you should really listen to it. And so she told me about this and prior to that I would often read books and at this point if I read a book I would get a headache. And I think that was actually because in that day following the surfing, the second impact when I'd been surfing and when I was feeling very ordinary and I was like just chilling, I thought, Again, oh, if I can't go surfing, I should do something, make use of this time. And so (laughs) there was a book there that I was reading and I think maybe when I was reading that book at this time when I had all those symptoms Mm. or when my brain really just needed a rest, I don't know, maybe that just means there was something where it took a while for me to sort of Mm. be reading a book in that setting again. So again, like with it, I had to actually slowly reacclimatize myself. If I was reading at night before bed, I would, instead of trying to read what I wanted to read, I would read half a page and then I would force myself to close the book yeah. <laughs> and be like,
1: what did I have,
0: have, What happens next? I'd <laughs> close the book, put it, put it, and then, you know, over weeks increase. And it's amazing what the brain and the body can yeah. adapt to and recover if you allow yeah. it to do it in a graded way. But the idea of trying to read this book that's going to be helpful. You You want to get that information in, but I couldn't read a book. And so audiobooks are fantastic. So I highly recommend, I think it's on Audible. You can get it from the library. Yeah, fantastic book. And the reason it was fantastic was because he shares stories of people who have had miraculous recoveries from all sorts of brain-related, I don't even know if illnesses or is the yeah, right Traumas
1: word. or, yeah, like stroke. Yeah, stroke wasn't one of the yeah, people in the book. One. Yeah, there was just some injury. amazing
0: stories. And this was, I don't know when it was written, but it was stuff that was not accepted sort of.
1: Kind of general knowledge of that, that field or yeah. that area. Yeah. And
0: I just found it the most hopeful mm. sort of exciting life reinforcing light at the end of the tunnel for me. And so I would just listen to it and just find myself so excited and exhilarated by the thought. I mean, you know, I'd be listening to someone's story about recovering from a vestibular issue and the incredible doctor they're sort of seeing in the US and all these amazing, you know, just their curiosity. Basically all the recoveries were because the treating doctors happened to be incredibly curious and open-minded and these things that people didn't expect to happen would happen. And um, that book was probably just lit a match, you know, for me in that it gave me hope that you can recover and that regardless of whatever's happening for someone with a brain-related um, issue, which are pretty, like, um, confronting issues because because of what we are talking about earlier where traditionally they've been regarded as it's fixed and that's the way it is, which is a very kind of fixed mindset. And instead of just... Opening the curtains on that and saying, "Here are these examples of people who have recovered from things people didn't expect them to." So mm-hmm. that was a fundamental, a fundamental moment for me, and I'd really recommend that book.
1: I think, yeah, that's that's huge. That that no, knowledge that things can change, and and I think what I love about those is we all kind of go in a way. I, I do anyway, for the underdog, like, you know, when you're watching yeah, yeah. something and then it's like, I kind of like when I think about things like that, because I've gone through, you know, various injuries and, and other things, not, not, um, not uh, what you're discussing here, but you feel like sometimes I do in that situation that I'm the underdog. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I can cheer for that. Like, if you feel like it's possible, that's amazing. And I think that that is really that hope is really, really important. And that hope is based on solid scientific knowledge. And that's, I think, what I, as a, as a researcher and a scientist, I get really excited about because it's not misplaced. It's not misguided. It's based on the, the, the knowledge that we know from rigorous study. And yeah. that's amazing. Where did you find yourself, I suppose, after that? And, and where, how does that compare to where you are now?
0: Yeah, sure. So I suppose that, you know, if we look at that stand back kind of view, So that probably went for – you actually asked a question earlier about how often would I see the team. I think I only saw them three times, maybe physically. So I went in there for the initial testing. I might have gone back maybe a month or two later and just seen maybe the physio just for something particularly and then maybe I went back once more another six months later. But I would often speak to the trauma rehab physician if I was – Having if I was concerned about something or I was uncertain about what I should be doing in a certain situation or if I was something was pushing too far or not pushing enough, I would speak to them they were really generous and you know I could email them or I could ring them and get some calibration of okay what is what is the right amount and just because you t- you mentioned before about threshold and working near the threshold it was really difficult to work out where threshold was or is and so that certainly took a while and i think that's part of the boom bust initially is you're not if you're not aware of your body and you're not that aware that's why you'd boom bust because you'd think you're fine still mm. but you'd push way past it and then you wouldn't know until you crash and so part of that was talking to her and getting a bit of a calibrating your own understanding of what is appropriate and what's too much and what's challenging because you're always you are always working near yeah. threshold and so you are always feeling pretty ordinary yeah but you need to keep pushing but not push too far.
1: did you find that that threshold like changed day by day because i would imagine it might not say actually static even for a similar activity like if you were mm. super tired or didn't get a good sleep
0: oh absolutely in terms of making changes i would probably make changes every oh, it'd be based on feel yeah. but the shortest time period would probably be two weeks before a change. But, you know, there probably would go months where you wouldn't make changes and other times you'd be making them quite quickly because you felt you were starting to feel like you had surplus energy perhaps. But, yes, stuff would vary, you know, as you scale in, yeah, day to day, throughout a day. Like it it was quite amazing how even you could be feeling so bad in the morning. Mm. And you get, you know, once you get into the day, you could actually get through it. Like, um, I probably had a whole lot of crutches through that period, and, and some of those were from the team, and some you just picked up yourself. And so, I'll, I will come back to your question. <laughs> I've just realized no worries, this is a really no. <laughs> interesting catch, I like it. I just realized there's some extra information which yeah, might be helpful to people. Yeah. So, in that initial period, there were probably some other crutches. For one, one of those for me often I would wake up and I would be almost paralysed by fear and that was fear of how I was going to be that day and whether I could cope with with it and whether I could get through the day. And that sounds, I mean, it even sounds (laughs) sort of trivial to me but it certainly wasn't at the time. And... I guess the stories that we tell ourselves and if we allow ourselves, that's effectively, that fear is is a voice on, in my head saying when I wake up, right, right as you wake up, oh, you're not feeling good. Like this isn't a good start to the day. <laughs> like you've, you're feeling very fatigued and you're feeling, you know, you got a bit of a headache already and you've, you've just had eight hours sleep and you've got a pretty big day today. I don't know if you can, are you going to, Be all right? Can you get through today? And, you know, that would then just like, once that happens, it starts to like build and run on itself. And if you're lying in bed and you're like, yeah, am I all right? You know, it's amazing how we can have these conversations. (laughs) But but like really that's just one character in your head. And then you're almost like receiving it. Oh, yeah, that's true. I am fatigued. And then you're thinking, well, I was going to get up and go for a walk. But maybe I... Really need another hour's sleep, and like maybe it's critical that I get another hour's sleep just because I might not actually get through the day and my body, my brain might need another hour's sleep because you 're so overly hyped about your condition of your brain, and that 's just a trap and um, so that's something I'd really say to people is probably one of the most useful crutches that i i don 't even know <laughs> how well, I don't think anyone told me. I think it kind of came from a quote that wasn't completely relevant. <laughs> but Tom Afey, who was a really famous Richmond coach, had this and he was a really vigorous, energetic, positive you know, supporter of people, a, a real – someone I was kind of idolise. And he had this quote that was, when the sun comes up, you'd better be running. And because he would get up at like, you know, five o'clock in the dark and run 5K and then go for a swim and then do 500 push ups or 500 sit ups and 100 push ups. And so that was just him. And even though I couldn't run, obviously, at that point, the Grace McKellar had, prescri- you know, they had, had said, I want you to walk for 10 minutes. If you can walk in nature, that's the best. You know, a calm, quiet setting where there's trees, maybe away from traffic, but walking's really good. And just notice, like notice what you can see, you know, notice the trees and the leaves and the clouds and what you can hear and just pay attention to that. And just start off with 10 minutes. And again, you're like, 10 minutes? Normally I would surf for three hours. Like what are you talking about? Anyway, 10 minutes, okay. And we can grade that up over time. You know, in a couple of weeks we'll do 15 minutes and then we might do 10 minutes twice a day. But as as we've talked about, it grows. And um, it's quite helpful to have guidance and know what is appropriate and um, something to work, you know, at least then you're not questioning whether you're Mm. doing too much or not enough. So that walking, that getting up in the morning and walking, that was my one sort of activity I was allowed to do early on. And so it became really important to me and I was really fortunate. I lived in, um, I was living in Warrnambool. I lived, you know, in this beautiful, outdoor setting so within about a block of my house there was a really nice patch of sort of native vegetation and i could walk to that and i could just kind of close my like just pretty much just walk there and then be walking taking it all in and i'd do that 10 minute return trip and that was sort of the first thing i would do and so i something to do with tom hafey's quote early on when i i must have fought with myself a few times and maybe stayed in bed and it wasn't helpful. And so somewhere along the way, this voice, this other voice, helpful voice in my head kind of yelled at me like, get up, get up, get out the door and just walk like you can think later. Yeah, Don't think now, you can think later. And so that was really helpful because it just removed, it didn't matter how I woke up, I just wouldn't allow myself to start that process of querying how you felt and whether you know you would get through the day. I just t- turned off thinking and it was just get up, put on your shoes, walk out the door almost like a zombie and just walk. And then you would just find like it's you walk, you're out in you know halfway through the walk, there's birds flying over you and the sun's starting to come up and it's beautiful and and you're noticing looking at the you know, paying attention, as they've said, like looking at the leaves and looking at
1: the clouds
0: mm. and and by the time you would get back to the house, ninety-eight percent of the time, you'd feel good enough to then go, Yeah, like okay, now I'm gonna have a shower. Now I'm gonna have breakfast. And it was just it got you over that hump. And it's amazing how sometimes then by the end of the day, you could be feeling some of the best you've ever felt. And so things can change really quickly. And I mean, I would have been the first to tell you, I'm feeling so bad at this point. I, it's not going to be better later. But it's amazing how quickly it can shift. And so that that was really helpful. The other thing is if things are really, really difficult, not only early on but later on, if you'd have things happen um, where you get a knock or whatever and things become really difficult, I find that it's often when you're forecasting out and you're thinking, oh, how am I going to cope with X scenario when I've got something on this weekend and what am I going to do to deal with that? You know, I've got this commitment. How am I going to deal with that? I can't, I might be not able to cope. And so I almost have this thing of like bringing your hand like right into your face and going, okay, like let's just deal with this. What's the next thing you have to do? Okay, the next thing you have to do is get up and go for a walk. And in that setting, it might be, okay, the next thing I have to do, if I can get to work, Today's a win. That's all you have to do. Don't worry about anything beyond that. And then it's like you get to work and you're like, oh, nice one. Okay. Just get to morning tea. And there's something that's incredibly enabling about that. And I think in our own lives we can, we can almost fall into that trap of forecasting so far out that things can become burdensome. And so that's just a really helpful tool is just bring it right back to the shortest possible. Just deal with that. That's all we have to deal with.
1: And I think that's a lot of what you're saying would really hit home actually for a lot of different people, whether or not they've experienced any type of, you know, head injury or anything. Like lots of times people will wake up, you know, feeling anxious in the morning and that can paralyze people. And it's Mm. sort of like those thoughts, they're thinking you need to do things but you're not physically moving or actually doing anything. So all it kind of does is generate a copy of itself that perpetuates. And that is, can be so stressful. Like, I know, I I love that idea of, you know, just bring it here, just get it to that. Like the number of times I remember, you know, not wanting to, you know, get up and do stuff in the morning, like a a run or something, because you're like, it's cold, it's crappy. (laughs) I don't feel like I'm kind of tired. But like, I remember our, I did different athletics in um, university and and high school, and and they always said we had one coach that said, you know what, just get just get up, do five minutes of it. Mm. If if you hate it and you still feel like garbage, quit. Yeah. But most of the time, once you do five minutes, or maybe it would be two minutes, depending on your situation. Um, you're, you're fine and you're actually you're pleased that you've done this and yeah. like I, I find I apply that actually even to my daily life stuff when I have a task that's kind of hard I'm like okay I'll just do it for five minutes that's good but by the time you've been five minutes you're stuck into it enough that and you're, you've you've shut up you've all the other it. voices that you can't do it so you, you started you're good
0: you've got you're over right? that first hurdle that's <laughs> on. so
1: I hear you I think this is very good advice
0: now I've gone way off tangent, (laughs) but actually there was one other thing before we go back on tangent was there was a piece of advice that the trauma physician told me at one point when I was struggling and she said, be aware of where you are and keep going. And that, I don't know, hit a nerve with me, like a positive nerve in that when you were trying to, struggling to find that threshold, And you, often you felt like things were a little bit too much. So it was a fine balance between, you know, we talked before about you overdoing it. Well, probably the longer it went on, it was more, almost just, it became more of a drudging grind because you were never feeling good and you weren't feeling as though you were getting better. And so it was just like you were on this slow march forward, (laughs) it was awful, and Felt really isolated and felt really dark and and so if you were trying to make I remember this for trying to make those changes in okay I've, I need to, I've been sitting on six minutes for too long like I need to get it down to five minutes but I don't know if I can do it like it's I'm already running on fumes here and she would say be aware of where you are and keep going
1: and I just found that really it's calming calming mm.
0: it's acknowledging that yes what where you are is tough and it's not easy, and so acknowledging that and being aware of it, yep, and keep going, and it's really quite That's eloquent lovely. and beautiful. I like that a lot. Mm. Okay, we can go back. <laughs> and what was the actual
1: question? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think oh, it was something along the lines of: so you've been, you've described, I guess, this this slow, gradual yes. improvement over time. Um, what sort of, what what experiences did you have after that? And And sort of between that bit and then your continued recovery, yeah,
0: sure, so that went for some years. I suppose they'd taught me these these key skills of starting to become a bit more aware of your body and your energy levels and what your body and your brain needs to kind of adapt, and they'd given me that confidence that I would return to full health at some point, and strategies to sustain me until I got there, if you like. So I would only then just check in occasionally with them. I guess I was just that used, that was a path that I just took forward really until the last year. But along the way, you would still always, or I found I was still always searching probably for a silver bullet. And that takes you on all sorts of like interesting and divergent paths. And some of those are probably more helpful than others. I'm not sure if any of them, you know, in and of themselves are a silver bullet, but probably all of them contribute in some way, hopefully positively. Mm -hmm. I think you've obviously got to look after yourself and be aware and try not to do anything that's risky or could detrimentally impact you, but it's hard to be really clear. I think it's a bit of a cumulative impact of all the different things you're trying to do to help yourself and probably just – Even the fact that you are actively trying to help yourself, I think I've probably learnt more recently about um, through you and, you know, your team and the work you do, how important it is to actively participate in your recovery. But yeah, I tried a wide assortment of things along the journey to varying levels of success, including physiotherapy, osteopathy, reflexology. That's where they massage your feet. It's very relaxing. Uh, Kinesiology, Reiki. I tried to eat food and have supplements which I read were beneficial for the brain. So fatty fish like salmon and fish oil supplements for the omega-3 fatty acids. I had lots of fresh vegetables and dark leafy greens. You know, I try to have Turmeric and or curcumin Which is a natural anti-inflammatory I tried glutathione Um, I did a lot of different vestibular Exercises you know along the Journey which is where you move your head from Side to side or up and down Whilst trying to maintain focus on a point On the wall Um, They were prescribed by the rehab centre I tried floating once which is Basically like a warm spa which is Designed in such a way as to Remove all sensory stimulation into your body I was I was constantly searching for and trying things which appeared to be low risk, but which might have some potential gain.
1: I, I have very little problem when things don't have um, danger. Yes. When they don't have risks involved to them or involved with them and they're not you know, being charged exorbitant prices or things like that, then I think a lot of times they're explorative options for yes. people because we're all unique.
0: Absolutely. Um, there were some other things. I remember coming across an app called Superbetter, which was – developed by a game developer in who had I think suffered a concussion mm-hmm. and so she'd actually created it um, after or during her recovery she'd found video games really helpful and so it was it's using all of the techniques that she uses in her mm-hmm. game development of positive reinforcement and um, I guess setting challenges mm-hmm. and and that sort of thing to try and reinforce things that are gonna be beneficial for you and are gonna be helpful for you. So it was kind of cool. I used it for a little bit. Meditation. Mm. You know, I've I've toyed with for many years because people always sort of talk about how great it is. It's something that I've persisted with and it is difficult, but I find really helpful. And I think, you know, there are many free apps out there, I think, persisting until you find one that the voice aligns with you. Like some of them are just annoying, you know, for me, whereas others are really really resonate i'm like oh yes i can i can listen to you
1: Mm. Um, i like that idea of exploring because i i do think often we get suggestions of things and maybe we try one mm. and we're like oh no that's i hate it but but that idea that yeah there there might be some out there that resonate more or less with you and it's kind of finding that one that that speaks to you
0: absolutely yeah so for me that that's actually that's something i i find really really helpful in normal life now Mm. um you know, if if I've got something on or I just need to sort of quieten down or be a bit more focused. Meditating's really helpful. I found quotes really, really helpful.
1: How did you how did you use quotes? Like you mentioned a little bit the one quote from um the footy coach that kind of helps you to to develop this strategy or crutch, as you called it, to get out of bed. Yeah. Did you did you sort of use them when you were in those really rough times? Or yeah. yeah? I
0: wish I'd written them all down along the way because I would hear something or I'd see something written or someone would say something and it would just hit a chord with me and I would like fix onto it and that would become my yeah my motivating kind of credo in my voice yeah to get me through tough periods basically until it wore out and it's funny how they would they would wear out but anyway so I'd like use it until it no longer had its magical effect and then I would drop off and I'd find something else. This was a good one that someone that I am very uh, impressed and inspired by said. He said, no one and nothing is ever broken and can't be fixed. And again, I think it's just that idea of kind of hope and um, that's really powerful. Franklin Roosevelt, he had one that I've always loved and that is the only thing to fear is fear itself because I find that often... In this situation, it was kind of a fear around, am I doing too much? Is this going to hurt me? Is this,
1: Mm.
0: you know, they're probably all quite just personal at the time. If something resonates with you and it's helpful, use Mm. it, you know, until it's no longer helpful and move on. Um, What else? Uh, Family and friends, or particularly family. I sort of probably wound back seeing friends for a couple of years because they, local friends I would see, but I wouldn't, I just didn't have the time or the energy surplus to kind of go out of my way to see people. So if people, even then you had to be careful Mm -hmm. because it could really drain you. Um, But family were really important and I actually kind of, I was lucky I lived about an hour from them so I could go and see them on the weekend and it actually meant that I had much more time with them, quiet time and um, recuperative time with them that was really special that I wouldn't have had. And interests are really important. Like at that time, I felt incredibly grateful to them for just their support and their understanding and their listening to me if I needed to just vent um, and that kind of ability to, if you were really struggling, pick up the phone
1: yeah. and
0: talk to them. And I don't know, like I suppose you were just having to put on a front for like 99% of your life, like pretending that everything was all right, go to work, just pretend. And then it was just so draining and so it was super nice to have people that were just, you know, they're in your corner and you know you're not having to, I don't know, pretend to mm. sort of be impressive or something to them mm. and you could be weak, you know, in front of them. And although that at times felt awful and then you'd feel wish you weren't doing that and loading them up, I think for them it's, you know, Dad always had a great quote problem shared is a problem halved and um so their, their support was really important and so I, there was this one thing I wanted to kind of do to, I don't know, show my appreciation that was cooking for them. And so I got really into Jamie Oliver and I could, you know, he had this great thing about him was it was sort of almost like audiobooks. He had them, he had his shows so I could never watch his, read his recipes because it was, I almost have like recipe book dyslexia, like trying to read a recipe, I've always just, you know, you have to read it like 700 times. <laughs> Whereas if I watch one yeah. of his shows you watch it once and you just know it and so I'd have to watch it a couple of times but then I'd like over the week you know I'd break it up you know in the way they would taught me and I might watch an episode on Monday after work and then on the Tuesday I might write the list on the Wednesday after work I might decide you know do half the shopping and then on you know anyway so then by the time I got to the weekend and I went home and I would like cook them this meal and I don't know in a time period when i wasn't i didn't feel like i was really doing anything i was literally just like going to work to try to sustain that so that i didn't drop off employment and i didn't really feel like i was doing anything outside that it was quite important i think to have an interest that you could actually succeed in and you were doing something for others and so that was really nice again i'll this is circling back but i think i mentioned um, My parents had sort of really recommended I try to persist with work and at the time I felt that was really problematic and I wasn't sure if it was the right call because I felt like I needed to just focus on my recovery and get better. I think, you know, as is normally the case with parents, they were spot on and if I'd stopped, it would have been that much harder to restart and probably the fear around that and coping would have been too great, whereas I always kind of just had my toe wedged in the door and they were so supportive, and then I, it meant that I could grade back up, and it's been consistent. Then, and a really important, you know, I suppose reinforcement of you through life. So those are all pretty like sort of.
1: That's amazing because I feel like as you're talking, I'm I'm making this picture in my head of you and all the things that are surrounding you, and I'm seeing you as a as a person, and I'm seeing. Nature, and I'm seeing walks in nature. I'm seeing, you know, family that you really trust and care about that you can be truly vulnerable with, which is incredibly brave and hard. I see, you know, valued life activities that are cooking, that are all these different things. I see work that is hard, but that is still contributing and it's keeping you, you know, it'd be nervous and fearful to not also be in it. And then, you know, I, I, that's just such an amazing cloud around you of probably what we would call sims or safety in Mies. These things that are there pushing you towards saying, I don't need to be protected mm-hmm. quite so much. And that is such a cool thing to see. Like, I, I want to make this picture because <laughs> that is incredible. And I think that, that um, the ability of all those different things to add up is also really cool because it's like you said even before it's probably just wasn't one thing but you add into that picture you actively seeking out different things and also putting in these strategies in place to keep yourself grounded and yourself motivated with quotes with different things like all of these things are just a huge big like hug <laughs> that's beautiful
0: are you able to explain like i i understand when you see yeah, that terminology. Yeah, Are sure. you because I've I've heard that and I think it it, it explains an approach to getting better that would be yeah. really, really relevant for people.
1: Yeah, sure. So we we talk about this idea of um, we all have our own unique protectometer, this unique system, our body systems, brain systems that that helps us protect ourselves. And how um, that's determined is we kind of take a balance of the safety and the danger that's within our lives. And so various different things, they can be a safety or they can be a danger. So a, a person that you hang out with, I enjoy spending time with you. So I would, you'd be a safety, a safety in me. If I was with someone dodgy and I'm in a room, I that person would probably be a danger. <laughs> so, so a person could be both things. Um, but the idea is that it's taking a, a look really quite deeply into your own life of the different contributing factors that may be adding to your need to protect your body. So they'd be dangerous, or they might be adding to the fact that you don't need to protect your body, um, safeties. And I guess the, where, where I was looking at what you were describing is is all these different ways that you're adding in sims, safety and me's, and trying to tip the balance so that you have more of those then danger in me, such as anxiety, fear, you know, you know, being, being worried about what the future is going to hold. All of those things that can, that can push the balance towards needing to protect. Mm-hmm. But you're actively adding things into the safety column to push the balance the other way. And that's, I mean, that's beautiful in terms of what we would recommend and we'd hope for people to be able to do.
0: It's beautiful. Very eloquent. <laughs> Can I add some context to it yeah, as well? Yeah, of course. So you work predominantly in pain science. That's right. And so it's probably a great, really good segue. I guess a lot of the things I was just mentioning were kind of like, I, I guess, additional small things that have been beneficial to various degrees. But if I'm really sort of looking at the standout things that were helpful, mm. I guess from that point of after Grace McKellar, one of them was meeting – you and the team
1: that was so from, fun.
0: from UniSA and so that was, so you're a academic researcher from the University of South Australia and what other f- groups or affiliations need to be mentioned there?
1: Um, not too much, mainly U- UniSA now. Okay. Yeah.
0: And so I guess my housemate, I lived with two housemates. At this time, this was probably two or three years post, post-accident, so I'm, I'm very functional. I'm at work, I think, full-time. But there's a whole lot of things. I was probably about 80% if I was to rate myself. I'm exercising, I think swimming before work some days, Uh, maybe even riding a bit. I think I'd reintegrated some social activities like as my sort of surplus energy increased because that's been huge in my life. Like um, people are everything to me. And so I, I got back down to Melbourne, which was absolutely terrifying the first time. I remember I was like on the bus down there and I was just like, what am I doing? What am I, I going to do if I just shut down when I get there? <laughs> anyway, I didn't. Like I had some like little quiet times in the alley like while I, you know, while I disappeared from my friends in the pub. And I wasn't drinking obviously but, um, you know, I saw some people and then I returned to Warnall. And, yes, it was draining but it was also such a sense of exhilaration and triumph of such a big step, you know, gained forward of like, travelling to Melbourne and see, <laughs> you know, seeing people again. And so, you know, things were slowly grading up and, you know, improving. But there were some fundamental things that I was still struggling with and they were tolerance to impact. So I couldn't – I'd been trying to re-acclimatise myself to jogging um, that whole – through basically through that period and I'd really struggled with that. So I'd graded up from sort of jogging in the pool – And, you know, two sets of 10 to sort of getting shallower and then onto grass. And I'd make some headway, but I'd always, not relapse, but like to basically descend into sort of symptom onset and um, having to like pair right back and go into recovery mode for a couple of weeks and then I'd get a bit burnt by it and I'd probably just be like, oh, I don't really need to jog. Like, that's all right. I'd prefer just to be able to survive. And so there are a whole lot of things I still wasn't doing. And um, I had this interest in neuroplasticity and my housemate, one of my housemates at the time was a physio and she had studied at the University of South Australia and she'd studied one semester under Lorimer Mosley, and she was aware because she was a physio at the hospital that there was a group coming through town on this particular day and they were doing talks about pain science and that it was related to neuroplasticity and so she said, oh Robbie, you'll be interested in this, you should head along. And so I was like, oh, neuroplasticity, I'm interested. And so I normally probably wouldn't be doing things after work, but I there was a public session I think at 5 o'clock or 5.30 in the Lighthouse Theatre in Warrnambool, and David Butler was leading that. And then I went to that, and it was all pain. Sorry. So this group, the group was called The Pain Revolution, and it was led by Lorimer Mosley and David Butler and... Yourself and add anyone else that needs to be added.
1: Um, Always Tracy, but <laughs> oh, and Tracy. So well,
0: I didn't meet Tracy, I suppose, until oh, years later. Right. Yeah, and um, and my understanding of it, and again, jump in if if you need to, was that this group are pain scientists, and my understanding is that as a group, you are at the forefront of pain science globally. And basically like rock stars in the pain science world. That's how I describe you all, rock stars in the pain science world. It's hilarious. i got
1: to get some new clothes then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you're all phenomenal humans as well. And anyway, so my understanding is that I guess the group realised that there's probably about a 20-year gap between where the science is and where general knowledge in the community and even to a large degree um, in how Health practitioners are treating pain sufferers, so people who are suffering from chronic or persistent pain. And so this tour, if you like, the group was riding from Melbourne to Adelaide over a week, and every day you were stopping in a different regional centre and giving public presentations about pain science, basically to lift the education of pain science within the community but also to health professionals along the way, which is really clever. And so I happened to become aware of this stop in Warnable. and I saw David Butler present to all of these chronic pain patients and that was amazing and, you know, really vibrant presentations. <laughs> and then there was mentioned that there was a public health, like a health professional session after and I was just like, I'm going to this health. And I'm pretty <laughs> like very honest sort of, <laughs> you know, straight down the line sort of person. And so but I was like, I'm going to this session. I was like if I have to make up you know that I'm studying physio or something to do this I I'm just going to have to prepare it beforehand yes I'm a physio
1: straight piece I'm ready
0: (laughs) (laughs) and so I went to the health professional session after which was out at Deakin University in Lorimer um, presented there even though everything being mentioned was talking about chronic pain everything resonated for me and it was like listening to the Norman Deutsch book and his examples of I was just sitting bolt upright. Normally, I would probably be in bed at this time because it's like 10 o'clock at night. I mean, I don't do drugs, but I presume it was like being on cocaine. Like I was just <laughs> so high. I was just high on life um, from this information, this hope, and what you got that you were sharing these, these learnings and these stories and this science, which was amazing, and yeah it was really, really impactful um, to me, and I have described this um, previously as I think that night it was almost like oh I got given this book, you know, I was holding this kind of pretend book in my in my hands that I knew could help me because I could see how it was helping people with chronic pain, and I could see that it was relevant to my situation, and so I thought, okay, I just need to I've got this book that's going to fix me or help me and it's but it's written in a different language because it's about pain and I'm trying to recover from post concussion so it's like I need to translate it into post concussion so I was it's like for the next few years I was carrying this book around just sort of thinking to myself ah oh, you know like I've got this book with the answers <laughs> and I'm going to learn to read it one day but I've got it like I'm, <laughs> I'm so aware of
1: got it,
0: it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is a big thing still because, yeah. like, sometimes yes. if you're not aware of the book or you don't have the book, it's a big difference. And so, I was, that was very sustaining. And, you know, I've sub- subsequently realized that I can read it. It's written in English. And the way I see it now, everything that, um, from my experience, that is talked about in the chronic pain science and, you know, in David and Lorimer's book, Explain Pain, which is another book i'd recommend it's written in the context of pain and persistent pain and i guess the science behind that and how you know our protectometer works and the systems in our body work to protect us and that's effectively what chronic pain is an overprotective pain system but i've subsequently learned that in its chronic state like after probably i don't know much more than six weeks I'm not sure exactly when. but I think
1: we go three months, but you're very close. Okay, this good.
0: Probably after three months, you know, really my – certainly over the last few years, my symptoms and symptom onset and stuff has really probably been very similar. And it's – I see it as my system being overprotective. So once I've learned to understand that and understand how that happens and why, I can turn that down. Mm. And all of a sudden, I'm not getting symptom onset and I'm – just it's like that's been the fu- that's been the really fundamental thing that knowledge and understanding that that's completely applicable to me and my experience now and i think it's applicable to a variety of you know neurological and issues I, beyond pain
1: i agree with you because i think it to me listening to your story i hear a protective feature of fatigue a protective feature of you know Fog, mm. <laughs> cognitive impairment. It 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 is seems it's not unreasonable. I don't think to to think about the way that our systems react as when it's too much. We in order to stop us as humans when it's too much, there has to be a sensation or a symptom mm-hmm. because otherwise we don't listen. Mm. And we see this even you know when people have an acute ankle sprain and everything starts to hurt. Well, that's so adaptive because as humans, we will push through things. And unless it hurts a lot, we won't stop. And so it's really interesting, I think, to start to think about the extent to which this exists in other neurological type conditions as the one that you're speaking of or, you know, things like stroke as well. We get mm. lots of fatigue post-stroke that how, how different is this? We might just be starting from a slightly different state of a nervous system, mm. but there's still neuroplasticity, there's still changeability, and there's still the need to protect. Mm. So I don't know. I like it. I think I, I, I think that there's a lot of scope for that to really help.
0: Mm. I just realized halfway through that, that I still need to circle back. <laughs> the reason I told that story, and I didn't need to tell the whole story then, but was to explain that this is what you had described in that, that sim cloud, mm. the safety in me cloud, is coming from a pain science um, education yes. description, and the reason it's DIMSIM might sound funny, but it's it's effectively an acronym that's used because it's easy for patients to remember because we all know what a dimmy is, DIMSIM, and so DIM in this case is D-I-M hyphen SIM, so danger in me, safety in me, and it's just a clever acronym to help people remember that, okay, let's become aware of the things that are effectively emphasising danger in our systems or are threatening to us and try to lessen our exposure to those where we can or switch them off altogether and let's become aware of the things that are representing safety in me signals. And that could be catching up with family or friends. It could be doing an activity that you enjoy. It could be taking an active role in your recovery. And then by reducing your exposure to danger in many things, that could be, I don't know, what's some good examples of those?
1: Some of it can be changing the noises you make when you move. So some people, like when they're in pain, they do like big, uh, when they get out of a chair. It sometimes could even just be stopping making those noises can help. Really? Yep. Um, It could be, you know, deciding actually for some people, if I'm going to go on a walk, I don't really enjoy walking with that person. Yeah. I'm not probably going to go for a walk with them because I get stressed or they make me feel bad yep. and I, and that can be enough. And so from the, the basic science, I guess, of that is that the studies that we do where we manipulate these different things in labs, we show that it changes the threshold. Mm-hmm. So the things, your threshold that you were kind of talking about for pain, it changes the threshold at which it will come on. At which pain onsets. That's right. Okay. And it also will change if we give someone something that hurts will keep that identical and those changing those different things around people will change how much that exact same stimulus hurts. Wow. So, so that's how we, that's the science, I guess, behind why we, we think those things matter and we think that we should care about them. Yeah. Is that we, we see from a, a very controlled environment that they change that experience. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the idea. So you have it exactly right is that the more that you can enhance and bring in those safety in me's, those SIMs around you, as well as reducing where you can danger in me's, then you start to push the balance towards safety and not the need to protect and your threshold basically goes up. It takes yeah. more to elicit pain.
0: Okay. So I'm going to say, can I say that in yes, a, minute, of a simpler term just for my bet. understanding? If so that's saying for, the, for person A, you've got person A and person B, they're, you know, they're carbon copies of each other. Yep in this case, but we're just going to give them different exposure. One person, so the same injury, yep. same treatment, but one person is doing a whole variety of things that give them safety and me messages, and that might be catching up with family and doing things they enjoy. And the other person is maybe catching up with someone who or, creates stress for them. or Yeah,
1: or staying at home and not even talking to anyone, isolating themselves
0: that their pain experience is going to be different. Yes. And the person, like in a chronic pain situation, the person who's got a good ratio of SIMS and a low ratio of DIMS is going to experience lower pain.
1: Yes. Wow. Yeah. And we try to do those in experiments by making having someone be their own control. Mm-hmm. So we randomize them to different, and, but everyone always does all the conditions. Mm-hmm. So then you actually know that that system is the same. Yeah. Because otherwise that's a hard comparison. Yeah. But yeah, no, nope, that's exactly right. Yeah. And
0: I, so then I suppose what we're saying in my situation is that instead of pain onset, it's symptom onset. So if for my symptoms are cognitive fog and fatigue and headache and nausea yeah. and instability, like um, vertigo or yeah. um, unstableness that those, they will be affected by those things. That's exactly right. Beautiful.
1: I guess one of the things that I think was, that we sort of talked about a little bit before that I think would be really interesting to chat about is um, you had mentioned that you had this big multidisciplinary team that you saw originally mm-hmm. and that there may have been one person on this team that um, you felt that you might not have got as much out of it as you could. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, yeah, absolutely. That experience?
0: I'll give you a little bit more lead in too. So yeah, I, I sure. only saw that um, team in Geelong, you know, say the three times yeah. and then basically I'd been working my job in Warnable for six years at this point. I, this was three years ago and I loved it and I loved Warnable. but I needed to sort of do something else professionally and I also kind of hit a plateau in my recovery and I couldn't make any headway with this um, adapting to impact. And so there were still a variety of activities like surfing and jogging and really, you know, even if I didn't want to go, you know, I had a lot of mates getting married and I didn't want to go to a bucks party because there'd be a lot of horseplay if mates would like, you know, Jostling. have a couple and then jostle. I'd be really concerned yeah. about the impact of that on my head. And so even though I was highly functional, I suppose then you adapt to that and you're like, but I want more. Yeah, which is good and bad. But um I still I suppose I was yearning for more recovery. And so I sort, you know, sought out what what else could help. And I spoke to my team in Geelong and they said, well look, there's there's a concussion clinic in Melbourne at the Yepworth and they they have got a dedicated concussion clinic. I know they actually run a running program, so that might be worth exploring. And I thought, oh, perfect. Like, I'm wanting to get back to running. They're a concussion clinic. And, you know, I had heard in one regard or another that they were the best regarded concussion clinic in Victoria. So I was like, ripper. So I went down, very similar approach. In that case, it was, uh, I think, a neuro, like the head person was a professor of neurology or neuro rehab or something, not a trauma rehab, so slightly different, but... Probably their understanding of the brain and um, brain science was maybe mm-hmm. a bit better, but very similar approach. Had a team, did all of those initial tests again, and then I basically worked with an exercise physiologist who was really a very specific graded acclimatisation to impact program. So that was on a treadmill and then grading it up mm-hmm. over weeks. And I did improve. I think I got up to like 12 minutes over... I don't know, eighteen months or something, but still, yeah. I was. It was I was always at threshold, yeah. And I'd probably been sub threshold for a period because yeah. I'd I'd got got to a good functional level, and then I was working just below it. But I was working a really intense job where I was working long hours. It was stressful. I was living in Melbourne, so I probably had less. It's probably some of my sims in hindsight had been taken away, and probably had some more dims. <laughs> And then I was working at threshold mm-hmm. all the time and I was constantly sort of fatigued, constantly on the edge of a headache. And also my emotional responses I found were more elevated. So if I you know, had done a running session yesterday, I would go in there, say, once every fortnight and on the in-between periods I might do a run every three days or as they suggested. And I would just find that would just always be on the edge of tipping over. Yeah. And when I was tipping over, you know, if I was at work and you're working twelve hour days and I would just find I because I was getting much better at awareness, self awareness yeah. at this point. So I would just find that I was reacting internally to situations yeah. strange, like differently than I normally would. And yeah. a bit more reactive. Yeah. Um, and so meditation at that point became really helpful to kind of <laughs> try to balance that and bring me down. But it was really difficult. And I was also, I'd taken on more and more. So I was president of an industry association at that point, having been on the committee for a few years and running all these events. Like I was doing a lot. So I'd taken on, I was playing a whole lot more sport, but just not anything impact-wise. Yeah. So, I, you know, like I was doing really well, but I was still aware there were things I was, wasn't doing. And this was my effort to try to get there. And it was had me against the wall <laughs> and I sort of got to a point where I was like I couldn't sustain it yeah. something I had to give and then something happened my partner at the time rolled over in their sleep and elbowed me in the head and oh no I kind of woke up and they were like whoa whoa, whoa! I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry like you know they were just asleep yeah and I probably just would have kept sleeping but instead I kind of woke up to them and be like oh I'm sorry I'm sorry and like and so I was like, whoa, what what, what happened? Now I should be scared. <laughs> yeah. And so effectively then I was sort of thinking, oh gosh, like, like I've just got hit in the head. Am I okay? And you stay straight away, start sort of assessing, do I have symptoms? And I guess the context for that is I had noticed over the past few years that, you know, you would inevitably get knocks. So you would get out of the car. You might knock absentmindedly knock your head as you get out of the car. And you, because I was so, I'd had so many recurrent issues of getting minor knocks and then getting symptom exacerbation because I was probably working near threshold. I was very sensitive to that. Um, my awareness of that was probably oversensitized. And if I ever did bump my head or someone bumped me roughly, I would be sort of then looking for am I with it? Do I have a headache? Am I. Do so- I feel tired? Yeah,
1: um, is that cognitive com- impairment coming in?
0: Exactly, and so as soon as you start doing that, like you're gonna find something, and so I started doing that in the middle of the night. Anyway, went to bed, woke up the next day, train wreck, oh, <laughs> like, no. and it was rough. And so probably I feel like I was clawing my way back for the yeah. next two months trying to survive, and that was where coming back the hand right in front of yeah. your face. Let's just get get up, get to work. Yeah. Like that became really important. Had the last couple of events of my presidency, including where I needed to do this big speech, and I had the last two weeks of this job and then like all these. So it was just I just had to like get across so I could slump across the line. Thankfully I could slump across the line. But anyway, did that, clawed my way back over a few months, got back to where I was kinda good to go again. And then happened again. <laughs> and um and same things had sort of happened, and but something in my mind kind of triggered, mm. and I remembered this conversation that I'd had with. So I mentioned I part of the team was a neuropsychologist, mm. and so I, something triggered this conversation I had with this neuropsychologist when I joined when I went to the Etworth, you know, yeah, for the reassessment. Yeah, I'd kept it pretty short because. I don't really know what a psychologist does or a neuropsychologist, but it sounds pretty serious and it just makes me think of the word psychiatrist, which again sounds serious and makes you think of loony bins. So I sort of (laughs) felt like both times when I had an interview with the neuropsych, Mm. they were assessing me to see if I was crazy. And, you know, like so I was probably just trying to, well, I was trying to give as normal as a response as I could and not say anything too crazy <laughs> and try to get out of the room as quickly as possible. Yep. Now, I didn't really, I've subsequently learned that's not what a psychologist or a neuropsychologist <laughs> does. <laughs> we can make these assumptions that we don't yes. even realise we're making. Yes. And so anyway, when I'd had that initial quite short chat with the neuropsychologist, they'd mentioned something about how in a chronic state, which chronic really just means anything, what, beyond three months? Things in All the neurons in your brain can become cross-wired. And I was familiar with this term because it was talked about in Norman Deutsch's mm-hmm. book. Um, but he just, I guess, something connected to make me realize that you could have a situation where as you've got head knocks in my situation over a period of time that are then followed by symptom onset, you also have an emotional response to that because it's stressful and you've after having done that a couple of times, you know what's coming. And that's so that leads to fear and stress and anxiety about that. And that over time, that can get crosswired into the mix. And so then once it's crosswired in, if you have, you know, stress, anxieties that's similar, that can be the, the thing that actually sets off the symptom onset, not the knock. And so that was, you know, he'd mentioned that and I was like, wow, that's fascinating. Like, you know, initially I was like, oh, how interesting. (laughs) Didn't relate it to me. Better (laughs) leave now. (laughs) And then, then, but then you you know, I think after, I don't know whether it was the second or the third time that my partner rolled over and elbowed me in the head, I'd got a bigger bed but, you know, still (laughs) 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 sleeping with a pillow on my head.
1: (laughs) Very good ability to starfish, I see.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Something. So I was like, I can't live like this. You know, I can't be constantly stressed in my sleep that I'm going to get elbowed in the head and then I'm going to be – wiped out for the next two months but something about one of them i thought that was so light like surely that couldn't have been enough to give me a concussion
1: Mm.
0: and so it just planted this seed of if that wasn't enough to actually cause the symptoms i was pretty stressed like i was probably a bit stressed then wasn't i robbie yeah yeah you're probably pretty stressed (laughs) you were a bit worried about it for sure and you were assessing to see if you had symptoms is it? So I sort of thought, oh, maybe. I wonder if it's possible that that cross-wiring thing that he mentioned is possible. And so I booked an appointment. And I think I get a little bit mixed on the timing, but I'd also started maybe prematurely doing these interviews. That was probably also a bit of an active search for me of how have other people recovered. And I had this fantastic conversation with a gentleman called Will Cole, who hopefully you've, you've heard the the, the interview. And, oh, well, you won't have to because it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not yet released. But the, readers, the But hopefully those will. listening will. Um, and he talked about how important the relationship with his neuropsychologist has been. And he kept talking about them. And I was thinking, man, like I didn't really talk to the neuropsychologist at all. <laughs> and so I was like there's something. I'm, I didn't miss something there. Like I, he was really important to him and he seems to be in a really good place. So maybe this is something worth re-exploring. And so I think I came away from that and immediately booked in to see the neuropsychologist at the Epworth again, even though I was barely even going in there at this point because I was basically on a break to kind of recoup before I reset and try it again. Anyway, I went in and sort of there was a different neuropsychologist in there at that point and I said, look, you know, I don't think you haven't even met me. This is the backstory. I was told this. This is what's been happening do you think it's possible that this could be, like, cross and it's my reaction to it emotionally, like, getting concern about getting hit that could actually be causing the symptom onset? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And I was just kind of like, what? Oh, okay. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And then just kind of looked at me like he was really good. He was that classic kind of guy who would just ask you a question very slowly and calmly and evenly. And then look at you. And it was so awkward. He just had that way of really just silence. And and I was kind of like after a bit of silence, he didn't add anything more. I was like, well, do you think you could help me with that? Like do you think there's anything you could do to help me with that? And he's like, yeah, 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 I could give you some tools. I was like, great, like let's let's do it. And so he taught me this um, really helpful tool. It's really simple. It's really basic, but it's been fundamental for me in my recovery, and I still use it. I think you could use it in everyday life for any anything going forward. And basically he, he said to me, look, you know that voice you have in your head who sort of sits on your shoulder and tells you you're no good at stuff, and he's talking in your ear? He said, for me, I call him Fred. Like give, give him a name uh, or give that person a name. For me, I call him Fred. And he said, "Look, I have to give presentations. I, you know I have to speak at conferences and every now and then, and I don't really like public speaking." And he said, "So you know, a month out from a speaking presentation, Fred will start getting in my ear and telling me, oh, you, you haven't prepared enough for this presentation. You're not even good at public speaking. Do you even really know what you're talking about? You're going to be rubbish." And he said, "Look, as soon as you become aware of, of Fred." Telling you a story in that way, just say to yourself, "Ah, I see what's happening here. Fred is telling one of his catastrophizing stories. It's not helpful to me now, however, so I'm not going to listen to it. Thank you, though, Fred." And that was it. So he tells me that, and I was sort of like, "Yeah, that's that's it." But I liked it, so I sort of was mulling on it and thinking about it, and I liked the way that instead of just telling Fred to bugger off and to shut up you're kind of acknowledging and appreciating and thanking Fred for his input because ultimately, Fred, this little voice on your shoulder, is is got your best interests at heart and is trying to help you and trying to protect you. But I suppose it's just differentiating yourself from the voice and standing back from it and going, okay, yes, there is this internal dialogue and it's fearful, but it's not actually, doesn't mean it's correct. So I can stand apart from that. And I think giving it a name helps with that. But I can stand apart from that and assess whether or not it's helpful. And if it's not helpful, I'm not going to listen to it. And I'll thank you for your input, but I'm not going to listen to it. And so I sort of thought about this and I thought about what name to give <laughs> to give uh, my voice. And um, in the end, I landed on Bertie. And so my name's Robbie or Robert. Anyway, so <laughs> for whatever reason, I named it Bertie. And... Fortunately for me, I got two weeks later or a week later, it was very soon after, a very good opportunity to put this to practice and that was um, I was riding to work um, just along bike path. I was cruising along and I was loving it, wind flowing through my hair and next minute I was sailing through the air and I think I'd hit a tree root and so the front and then maybe as a result I'd kind of clenched the – brakes you know, instinctively and so the front wheel had locked and so I just went sailing over the handlebars and broke my elbow but also broke my helmet, like landed on my helmet, rolled out of it. And if you'd told me that that was going to happen any time in the previous seven years or six years at that time, I would have just said, well, I, I might be a vegetable. Like, mm. I don't know what I'd. I, that would have been the mm. most terrifying thought. I just. Absolutely. And so immediately I kind of rolled out of it and I was
1: like, shit, 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 shit. <laughs>
0: and then I sort of thought, hang on, I know. No, this is, it's like perfect timing. You know, I've, this is the perfect opportunity to put this to practice. And so I immediately started using that technique and saying, ah, I see what's happening here. Bertie is telling one of his catastrophizing stories that because I've like landed on my, broken my helmet and landed on my head that this is going to negatively, you know, this is going to result in a um, further concussion or it's going to result in things flaring. But that's not actually helpful, Bertie, so I'm not actually going to listen to you. Thank you, though. And pretty much I was just doing that on a repeating cycle (laughs) (laughs) for the next 24 to 48 hours mixed in with, I think, the original neuropsychid also taught me another technique about grounding, which people talk about in mindfulness, where you'll say to yourself, What can I what can I hear? And you'll then just really focus on, okay, what can I hear? So similar to as I was describing Mm. before, okay, I can hear the projector thing over to my left humming. I can hear my voice. I can hear a slight hum over to my right. Mm. What can I see? What can I feel? Mm and going through those senses, which is a really helpful kind of grounding. It pulls you out of your head, pulls you into the present. It's quite easy to do. Um, you can just keep doing it on cycle. on. Mm. Um, and so I really heavily was just focusing on those because uh, inevitably Birdie would start sneaking in there. But was it a big enough knock? Like it was a pretty big knock. Was this tool really relevant for big knocks like that? And it would be like. Oh, I see what's happening here.
1: (laughs) Welcome, Bertie. Yeah, oh Bertie, thank you. I (laughs) see.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so just repeatedly, repeatedly doing that. And the symptoms never started. And that was the most you know, if the if the match if Norman Deutsch book was the kind of match at the start, that was just the most powerful reinforcement of that tool. And I suppose the science of what was going on in my head. And yeah, it was really, really powerful.
1: That's incredible. Because you, you hear that story as someone like, I trained as a physiotherapist originally, and we learned a little bit about concussions. And y- it would be something that I would say, I, it's not unreasonable that Bertie is saying that do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah, birdie, fair enough birdie <laughs> but i but I, I i think you're right that is just that's such a a huge coming together of everything that all of the things that you've learned and that you did and that kind of put you in that right place to be able to deal and have strategies in place for what to do mm-hmm. and that's it's incredible because i think like we were having a little bit of this discussion before about how sometimes voicing things and verbalizing and, and, and being aware of what those voices might be saying and whether or not it, you hear it as a real voice where it's, it's that feeling that is induced mm. by your thoughts around that, that issue. It, that just can be so powerful and being aware of it. I don't think it's something that we necessarily, it comes, like it comes easily to us. Like I do think it's probably something that we end up having to learn. And that balance between being very aware, but also aware of what your thoughts and beliefs and things like that can also have upon symptoms. So not only aware of body symptoms, being aware of of the other influences of that. So it's pretty cool stuff, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, you were a massive um, part of it. And I should actually, there's another little part of that. The reason I was writing to work um, and that is because the pain revolution, mm. because I was still subscribed to the emails. Yeah. I was still engaged with it. It still made sense to me. I yeah. still emailed you on yeah. occasion,
1: Yeah.
0: just sort of touching base yeah. and giving you updates on where things were at. And I just followed it. I found it interesting. And I knew that it was helpful in some way, as I've referred to before. I just didn't know how to tap into it yeah. for my situation. And I suppose there's this discussion of protection, overprotection that we've spoken about. And so something in my mind started to just sort of trigger around, you know, there's all these things that I'm not doing and maybe I'm being overprotective of myself. Like really every time I say no to something, no, I can't come surfing, I'd love to come surfing but I can't because blah, 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 blah. Oh no, I can't go skiing, over, you know, with you because blah 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 blah. No, I can't go cycling because blah 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 blah. Every time I, I just realised, every time I say no to something, effectively I'd created these walls. I picture a glass wall around me and above me. And every time I said no, it was like I was strengthening those walls mm. and that ceiling that was just mm. going to contain me in there. I don't know really what triggered that because I'd never thought that thought of that before, but. So I just sort of suddenly thought I need to break through these walls and this ceiling that I've constructed around myself before they're like brick walls that I can't get through. And so I'd obviously always been interested in the pain revolution and that ride from Melbourne to Adelaide and, you know, subsequent years it's been travelling through different areas and different regions every time targeting a different area Mm -hmm. and stopping in different regional centres and spreading the good word of pain science and... (laughs) And so I'd sort of been interested and thought, oh, I wonder wonder if one day I could do that. But it always seemed far off and fanciful. And I think my parents had pretty much banned me from riding (laughs) riding a bike because it was far (laughs) too dangerous. Risk-reward wasn't there. You're on the road exposed to people. Anyway, so there was something. I think there was maybe the call out for the next pain rev, which was going to be through Eastern Victoria. And so that was just this, again, this little thought that maybe this is exactly what I need to do. Like it is... The risk reward, it just doesn't make any sense. Like if you looked at it logically, you'd be like, No. You don't there's far there's ways you can challenge yourself or something that don't expose you to this risk. Because if you've had multiple concussions, you've taken seven years to get better. And then you go what, you're gonna go riding on the road?
1: For nine hundred kilometers for nine hundred Ks? And then
0: you've got to train for that. What do you think your chances of not getting How many people get knocked off a bike?
1: Yeah. You know. A lot.
0: Like, what are your chances of, th- of that happening and not getting knocked off? Like, it doesn't make any sense. So again, I didn't tell my parents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I am seen. Well, and I've, it's, a- this comes
0: from a position where I've been generally very, very. I've told them everything. Yeah. You know, they've been yeah. an incredibly support network. But I think that was also something about realising I needed to stand on my own feet, and I needed to make decisions sometimes that might not necessarily have their support if I. Deeply within myself, I knew that they were the right decision. And so I did run it past a friend who is both a physio and understands pain science and knows my family and knows me very, very well so that I could truth test it and just make sure I wasn't getting carried away Mm. and they were very supportive. And I just remember when they kind of, I told them what I was thinking and the thought process and why, and they just said, "Yes, absolutely." Like it was almost like with the um, with yeah. the neuropsych, like, but yeah. they were much more enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember hanging up from them. It was a very short conversation. I'd like left the office to make this phone call before I either did or didn't sign up to the yes. because there's a cut off date. And I just remember the excitement and exhilaration, and. Just rightness of the decision that I felt was just so profound. Like I was just like,
1: yes, 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 <laughs>
0: like just fist pumping. Like and it, like it does seem so weird, but it was just felt so right as yeah. a decision. And I've probably just learnt over time to trust my gut instinct and my intuition yeah. a lot more, even if sometimes it doesn't make something doesn't make sense logically. But you feel really within your core that it's the right decision, and so I did that and i committed to training and so that subsequent fall that i described was mm. uh, was training for this ride and then, and so i suppose it's important because i'd made this commitment that hang on i'm i am being overprotective of myself mm. i need to challenge mm. these this overprotective mm. mechanisms like conscious yes that i'm aware of before yeah. i imprison myself in it yeah. and then there was a deeper level of subconscious or unconscious pr- overprotection and so probably that even just changes, you know, coming off the bike. Instead of then, if I hadn't made that decision and I was just randomly riding, I would have been lambasting myself for being yeah. so silly and taking such a risk. Whereas yeah. instead, I, that wasn't in question anymore. I yeah. just committed to doing this and it was the right call.
1: Yeah. that's. I think that has a lot of merit, the idea of, you know, those things that really deep down feel like the right decision for you. Mm. Because I think at the end of the day, we're the only ones that are in charge of and able to do a lot of things to shape our future. And if, if there's something that is really, you know, really pulling and really saying, this is the right thing for me, I, I feel like when we don't listen to those things, I always worry those are the things that we regret.
0: Yes, that's been my experience.
1: And regret is hard.
0: Mm.
1: So I, I applaud the bravery. I think this that was amazing. I was just very sad I didn't get to come on that one. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: it was a great ride.
1: Yeah. So what was, your, what was the, um, I guess, the your most favourite or uh, what was the best part of that ride while you were doing it?
0: Um, so the ride itself was amazing. I trained on a road bike, yeah. I guess, over the next six months, training up for that, which was very hard. Yeah. Working at threshold, just below threshold again, <laughs> yeah. different threshold, really interesting. <laughs> but um, And then did the ride. And I yeah. suppose by that point I just had confidence in myself. I guess having made that decision to be, as you say, courageously sort of tackle it. And then also the learning having come off the bike and the reinforcement of Bertie and the story around yeah. Bertie. I still used that. I would, yep. Sure, I'd have situations where I would need to use that, but I had confidence in it. Mm. So I, I was sort of the ride just further reinforced my ability because probably previously I wouldn't have. That's quite an endurance activity. Like I would go out and training and do 175Ks and be on the bike for seven hours. Mm. Again, just even from a, I probably wouldn't have coped with that previously just from a fatigue perspective yeah. was I didn't have any queries around that and my body just responded well it's and so the ride was great loved it but the biggest thing for me was I would just try to go to every session I could get mm. to so every day would ride somewhere and then that year there was I think the year that you did it all of you were riding and then you were presenting and obviously over the years you, there was the realisation that that was maybe a bit much. and you
1: <laughs> They had an educational team come on. <laughs>
0: yeah, and so it, it got split out and so there was an education team doing the, the bulk of the presenting mm-hmm. and so the riders weren't coming in really fatigued. And so we couldn't always go to the sessions because sometimes just because where we were going they were earlier in the day. But these were sessions where, again, there was a public session and then a health professional session in each town we visited So every time we got in in time for those I would go Mm. and I just found it really reinforcing of Mm. all those messages because every day you were hearing the same messages but they were from different people who were presenting them Mm. and even though 80% of the slides are the same, they would do it in their own way and they would do it with their own spin and emphasising things, telling their own stories and so every day I would get something new Mm. from it. Or it would make sense. A new light bulb would go off, or it would reinforce something that needed to be reinforced. And the magic was just there every day, and you would hear—you know—you could see the impact it was having on people within mm. the community. So that, for me, was that was the absolute magic of it.
1: Yeah, cool.
0: When we've been talking about this overprotective overprotection, yeah, and Bertie, I actually do recognise now that and. I've got to be careful in how I word this, but my family did become a a second version of Bertie with the same positive intent and 100% wanting the best for you. But I did also get messaging from them not to do things and, you know, just... You know, because they were concerned about maybe they'd seen me in a horrendous state Mm -hmm. over many years, over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. as I say, because Mm -hmm. probably when I did, they saw me all sort of all Mm -hmm. out. Um, But as a result, it just I needed to be aware of that and that was part of Mm
1: -hmm.
0: making my own decisions and not telling them everything in -hmm. the end because I had to be, again, stand back from it Mm -hmm. and go, hang on, is this messaging I'm getting helpful for Mm me and my recovery? If it is, good, but I need to be able to stand separate from it and assess that and acknowledge and thank it, but make my own decision about whether I act on it.
1: And this is that's so interesting that you say that because I it to me mirrors some of the principles that we look into of things like self-regulated learning, where what it is, it's assessing that evidence or that information that's coming in and saying, How useful is this for for me right now how well does this match with the other things that I that I know or that I have have accrued what's the source mm. of this information how much do I do I trust it in this case which
0: is where it's really tricky with family because exactly. 99.9% of the time
1: trust them 100% spot yeah on. yeah exactly so i think but i think that the fact that there is that process going on is amazing because that's exactly I think where we would want the goal to be <laughs> in terms of taking in any new information. Because I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges, just speaking very generally, is all the information that comes out on things like Facebook and or even just anywhere on the internet, ask Dr. Google, <laughs> that can be can take you down hard paths, particularly in in certain chronic conditions. So I think that point is really, really important of yeah, sussing out and and, and thinking is this important and relevant to me? So that's really good. Amazing.
0: <laughs> and I just will tack on to that, that to my family. <laughs> um, yeah, look, your support and um, kindness and generosity through the whole journey has been uh, absolutely sensational and um, life-affirming. So thank you very much.
1: Big sims.
0: Yeah, big sims.
1: <laughs> Is there anything else that we've missed that you wanted to add?
0: Uh, trust your gut, and um, as you talked about, and really just be curious, and be kind to yourself and to those around you, and try to be patient. I know that's really difficult, mm-hmm. and get good people around you, and and keep um, keep on going.
1: Yeah, it's interesting from the our side of the the, the pain, pain science side of things, one of the things that we do often identify is that not every, you know, therapist or health professional that you work with is a fit for you. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Yes. And if something doesn't seem to be, you know, working well, it's also okay to switch and yeah. get another one that you can identify with a little bit more. Because I think there's lots of different ways to go about this and just even the way that some people approach it might not work as as well for you and there's no there's no bad feelings there's nothing about that you you're on your journey and you want to find the people that are your your you know strength your people your coaches
0: absolutely so i would say be brave trust your gut and continue to challenge yourself and keep trying to get better but Having said that, oh, that's a really tricky one. <laughs> if you listen to Wills, you can understand more about that around not yeah. trying to sort of not comparing yourself to the past but rather
1: where you are thinking
0: now. about what you might be able to do in the future. And I think that's quite important too. I think I was, that was another learning I got from Will, was I was constantly sort of comparing myself with rose-coloured mm-hmm. glasses to what I was like before. And really, you know, the rose-coloured glasses portrayal I was putting on myself before meant that you were never tired and you never had a bad day you never had a headache and it's just unrealistic. And so it's helpful to realise that and stop comparing yourself and go, well, I'm here, what might be possible? Could I walk for 10 minutes?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like that reframing.
0: That's sort of pretty much all I've got. But any other observations or um, additions that you think Mm. that you've got or that you think are worth adding
1: when did you have the moment where you realized that the book that you were carrying that you thought was going to help was in English oh. do you remember when that was
0: no I don't think it was necessarily a, it was like a transition a over time moment. I think it was more when I look back
1: yeah you know That's
0: and true. then I, I remember look thinking about that when I met you all yeah um, probably doing the pain revolution myself yeah. you know at the end of that journey was sort of the fruition of that but I probably already. I don't know if the, it wasn't a sort of light bulb thing, but probably even doing that week, you know, I'd obviously had a significant learning leading into it yep. during the training phase. Um, and then probably that reinforcement of all those lessons and just reinforcing this is, I could have just read this book yeah. and applied it to myself day one.
1: Yeah.
0: I probably got that over that week or over that, you know, six yeah. months from signing up to yeah. completing the ride.
1: Yeah. And so if you had to say, so if, if there's people listening that have post-concussion syndrome, what would be, you know, the one most important thing or five most important things? I don't know how many. What, but what would be the key thing that you would really want them to take away? Uh, it is tricky.
0: <laughs> it is. The first thing I'd say is it's really tough. And I know it's really tough and I know it's really scary and you want to be better now or tomorrow um, and that's frustrating and intimidating and you're still wondering even now if your situation is the same. But I would say the brain and the body are marvellous, miraculous things and that you can and you will recover.
1: Mm. And I I think especially if people haven't heard that, before from a health professional or from anyone that they've dealt with, that is a pretty life changing message.
0: Hey guys, it's Robbie again. If you got this far, well, well done. I'll have show notes on everything we talked about this episode on the podcast website. There's a link to that in the podcast description, along with a full transcript if you find that easier to follow along or to find what you need. I do need to highlight that I'm not a medical professional and that whilst Tasha is a physiotherapist, the advice and learnings which we share during our discussions are not medical advice and should be considered and reviewed in consultation with a trusted medical professional prior to being acted upon. These are our learnings from our experiences. Take what is valuable and leave the rest. Next episode, I'll be speaking with Lloyd Pokinghorn, a 36-year-old newspaper owner and editor, and a former mixed irrigator and father of two from Barham in New South Wales. Lloyd was injured by a misfiring shotgun in 2013 whilst assisting neighbouring farmers to clear birds from their crops. The injuries he received were largely invisible, but the effects upon him were significant. He's one of the most resilient and courageous men I've come across, and I really look forward to sharing his journey of recovery with you. Until then, I wish you courage and energy on your own journey forward. Thanks for listening.